Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the newest episode of the Theater Enthusiast Podcast. As always, the Hot Priest candle is lit. I am drinking out of my Hot Priest mug, and I'm very excited to welcome our next guest. He's a writer, direct, no, director? Yep. Yeah, director, actor, producer, does everything, making his Broadway debut at Manhattan Theater Club, the collaboration. I saw it, fucking loved it. I told him, like, that's why I needed somebody from that show to come on. Please welcome Eric Jensen. Oh, yeah. I hear, I can hear some applause. Is it yeah, happening? Oh, you, can you hear more it, of it? it? It cut out a little bit, but oh, I'm, but did. I'm, I'm here. I, it's there in spirit. It is. Well, you get yeah. that applause every night when you do. Yeah, we do. It's been, I, you know, it's not very often that you, and, you know, I, it's not very often you get a standing ovation every single night. Like, it's yeah. been every single night. It's weird. Well, I think it's also like the environment that it created. I will say though, because I know the production started in, we're talking about the collaboration. <laughs> if anybody is listening, they're like, what are you talking about? Um, I feel like it's very London because it's very rare, rare you walk into like a New York play and they have the DJ playing like 80s music. Yeah. Yeah. And just I've, the vibe of it. I've gained a new appreciation for 80s dance music. I'm a bit of a, from having done my my uh, my play about Lester Bangs, I, I'd become a bit of a music snob over the years. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, you know, but, you know, the last record that he was listening to before he died was was Human League. And and uh, Don't You Want Me Baby is one of those incredible songs that just gets you on your feet. And and uh, we danced to it backstage. Little, little known secret, the four of us danced to it backstage before we come on, all four of us in a circle. It's kind of fun. There's like a very particular dance move you have to do where it's kind of nobody can see me doing this stuff. Like, no, <laughs> it is like that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a lot, a lot of shoulders, a lot yeah, of shoulders and a little bit of hands. Yes. <laughs> I probably just do more of the shoulders. Somebody else can do the hand gestures if they yeah, need. Yeah, right on. Yes. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, before we even started, we were talking about our love and appreciation, our mutual love for Paul Bettany, yeah. which we'll get into a little bit later when we talk about the collaboration. Um, but I always like to start with, where are you from? Oh, hey, uh, that's a good interview question. Um, I'm usually on the other side of the interview thing. Um, uh, I'm originally we'll, from. We will get into that as well. I know, I know. Um, well, I'm I'm um, originally from a very small town in Minnesota, about 45 miles east of Fargo, mm -hmm. um, in northern Minnesota, called Detroit Lakes. And when I was living there, it had a population of about 8,500. I think it's at about 14,000 now, but a very very small town where everybody knew my grandmother. Everybody knew where I was at all times. She could find me, you know, with a single phone call. And, um, and uh, you know, it was uh, mostly a lot, of, uh, a lot of turkey farming up there, um, uh, a lot of uh, fishing um, tourism, and, um, and, and lakes and swimming in the summer and not much else. And it was kind of an idyllic way to grow up, parts of it anyway. So that's interesting. So you come from this somewhat idyllic, place of growing up so what got you into wanting to perform write create and do what you do now pretty much well there was a community theater there called playhouse 412 and we did um we did you know pretty white bread stuff we did the music man we did oklahoma we did um you know uh the the play tom sawyer um you know it was it was uh uh you know please the uh the scandinavian masses type stuff um and 
And I just discovered doing this with my family that there was another family outside of my dysfunctional one um, that existed in the theater. And then also I discovered that I was I was good at something that that um, I hadn't seen anybody be good at before, at least not to my knowledge. Um, and so I just started doing these community theater plays like my choir teacher was was in the plays with me, Mrs. Holt, you know, um, she'd have a martini with my dad after every show, you know, um, it, it was it was it was great. I, I loved doing it. We had uh, great uh, directors come in from out of town. I think a couple people from uh, from Chicago, a couple people from Minneapolis came in and directed us. And and uh, it was a, it was a nice way to feel seen in a very small place. So while you were performing in this community theater, where did writing come into play? Did that come in later or did you start at an early age? I mean, <clears throat> we were we were what you call working poor. Uh, so, you know, I didn't have a lot of toys that you got at a store. So uh, uh, but fortunately, we, we had a library pass. And so I could read a lot of books and I read a lot of science fiction and I read a lot of uh, Isaac Asimov, Lord of the Rings and um, Anne McCaffrey uh, uh, books like uh, uh, Dragon, Dragon, Dragon Riders of Pern, I think was her was her big series. Um, so I was always writing little stories and and was always, uh, you know, pretty good at school and uh, except for math. Um, so, you know, it was a creative outlet because when you don't have anything, you got to make something. Mm -hmm. um, but like really the writing really didn't kick in until um, my parents got divorced. And then I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was in a suburb of Minneapolis and I had it, which had which this one little school uh, in, outside of Minneapolis had this amazing theater program run by a guy named Denny Swanson and another guy named Kim Waltman. And uh, they encouraged me to get into the speech program. And there's a thing called creative expression. So my first piece that I wrote for my creative expression competitions was called Lifestyles of the Dead and Buried. And it was all about the uh, it was all about the funeral industry and what a what a scam it is <laughs> i feel like you, like that just like in my head i'm like oh i can see that like as a play on broadway like as some weird comedy yeah it was it like came to me it was a weird comedy yeah. so i had a lot of fun playing all the characters and and ideating the writing and my uh, teacher kim taught me structure for it and stuff like that and um so that the writing the writing was was uh harder for me mm -hmm. um i didn't feel as focused doing it as, as i did acting um and then of course when i met my wife i realized i was really a writer and i better get down to it so well, we'll get we'll get there. But so when did you decide you wanted to pursue this as a career? I think it was because I saw I saw a few things I saw. Um, I decided I wanted to move to New York after I read a book by Tama Janowitz called Slaves of New York. It's all about like New York artists. And it was it was a big hit in the 80s. Um, and um, and about all these artists who couldn't leave the city because they were addicted to it. Um, and then I saw a movie that Jeff Goldblum and Natalie Wood were in, along with Christopher Walken, called Next Stop Greenwich Village, directed by Paul Mazursky. And it was all about this, like, cadre of artists who, like, danced through New York City together, uh, even when uh, 
even when uh, a disaster befalls one of them. And I thought it was really cool. Um, I wanted to be part of that like coffee shop scene, you know, really. And then finally, the the, the kicker for me was seeing uh, the movie Cool Hand Luke one weekend at my house with my dad. And there are such amazing character performances in that movie. I was interested in Luke for sure. Like Paul Newman is like one of my acting heroes, mm -hmm. but all of the characters that surrounded him, I think Struther Martin was, was in it and some other people, like all the characters that surrounded him. Um, I might be wrong about Struther Martin. Uh, all the characters that surrounded him um, were were vivid and interesting and charactery and like you know they had draws and accents and quirks and i was like i want to be one of those guys i want to be a character actor mm -hmm. and so that's when my teacher and i started conspiring to get me into a good acting school and the choices were northwestern carnegie mellon or juilliard and i i was lucky enough to get into carnegie mellon did you get uh, into the college. other two or just well, it's this is a point of some contention at my house now. I almost got into Juilliard. My wife teaches there now, so whenever she goes to class, I pretend to be bitter about it, you know, <laughs> and competitive. Yeah. And I I don't remember if I got into North whether I got an acceptance letter from Northwestern or not. I think I did, but that was weird because you couldn't get in with a you didn't get in with an audition at the time. You you uh, you uh, it was all based on your schoolwork, which was you know, uh, low A's for me, high B's. So, you know, at that time it was a lot less competitive to get into college than it is now. My younger sister, I have a lot of siblings. She just mm. graduated from Northwestern. She did her oh, wow. and her master's degree. So uh -huh. yeah. So she studied journalism and that's one of like the top schools for journalism. So, oh yeah. Well, yeah. that Northwestern, uh, was instrumental in helping Jessica and I create one of our plays, which we can get, we'll get to in a minute. Um, but the Center on Wrongful Convictions uh, at uh, Northwestern University is this combination of journalism and lawyer, law students who work together yeah. to help people get exonerated from from long sentences or from the or, or at the time from the death penalty. Oh, was that so? That was the play, The Exonerated. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's what we wrote. Yeah, but then you know, um, going in order. You know, mm -hmm. I moved to New York City fully expecting to have just a theater career. Um, that's really what I wanted well, to let's, do. Let's go know. back to Carnegie Mellon for Okay. All right. What made you so it was just the three schools, Juilliard, it's a gray area of whether or not you got in. Or did you or I I believe the story that I tell is that I was waitlisted. Okay. But but that might just be wishful thinking on my part. I'm pretty sure I got waitlisted for it. I'm sure somebody at Juilliard is now looking through the records to see whether that's true or not. But okay. I was I was certainly not mature enough to go into the program. I had a I had a lot of um I had a lot of my childhood was was unpleasant uh, in, in spite of all the idyllic, um, you know, not locking our house and stuff like that. I had a uh, my father was a malignant narcissist and 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 uh, you never knew which end was up with him. And, um, you know, I, I love him now um, from afar, but um, he's no longer with us. Um, but, uh, but that made for, that created a lot of sort of echo behavior in me. Um, that was, that was, um, that was really super dysfunctional in terms of talking and listening to other people. Um, I had a lot of trauma that I wasn't aware of and didn't know about for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
and so uh so carnegie was ideal for me because they took a lot of younger students Mm -hmm. and um they seemed to be able to invest in the growth of the individual as well as the growth of them as a performer and as an actor juilliard really seemed more of like a classical classical training style program Mm -hmm. um that that wasn't that was a little more removed a little less hands-on you know and i really needed the hands-on help from teachers yeah. So once Carnegie Mellon is over, then you move to New York. So mm-hmm. let's take it from there. Yeah. And at Carnegie Mellon, I, I wrote a lot of stuff for class, uh, for class. Um, uh, you know, I wrote a song about the playwright, Joe Orton. I would write little scenelets for classes, preparatory things and stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun. So finally, um, I moved to New York. And um, while I was at Carnegie Mellon, I was in all these TV movies, all this, all this TV and film work went regional. So I was in a movie with Tony Danza and Bruce Willis. And um, I was in a movie with Valerie Bertinelli. Um, I was in movies, uh, I was in a, a, the remake of Night of the Living Dead. That was my very first uh, uh, film job as a zombie, which was just incredible. With uh, t- I, ironically, years later, you're playing a doctor on The Walking Dead. On The Walking Dead, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I was mentioning Tom Savini to some of the Walking Dead guys, and they were like, "Ooh, and you're on our show now." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah." Well, um, getting back to um, Carnegie Mellon, because the, depending on what theater program you're in, whether it be in New York, I don't really. I went to school in New York, so I don't know what it's mm-hmm. like in Carnegie Mellon. Were they okay with you doing things outside of the classroom, like auditioning for like all these TV movies and stuff you've seemed to do while you were there? It was a little touch and go for a minute. Um, like mostly I was able to do that stuff in the summer because it's unpleasant. But like I auditioned for Silence of the Lambs that was out there. I actually got hired to do Tim Robbins movie, Bob Roberts, but they wanted to hire me as a feature extra. And I didn't, I told Tim that I didn't do extra work, <laughs> which was a mistake because those characters later got upgraded. Um, and Tim still teases me about that. Um but uh, but yeah, I mean, it was touch and go for a little bit. But when I when I when they realized how poor we were and that I was really working my way through school, they 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 let me do it, you know, and just saw it as a an extra thing that I could do to make money to help pay for the tuition. You got to pay for your tuition somehow when you're working class. Okay. So did you have an agent at the time, or were you just doing like open calls for all of these TV movies and other things that you were doing? No, there's this wonderful woman. It was open calls. There's a wonderful woman named Donna Belajack, who's still a casting director out there. And she actually lent me my first $900 so I could afford my Screen Actors Guild card because I booked one thing with her. And then I booked uh, a movie with Timothy Hutton called The Dark Half about a week after I booked the first thing. And I had to join SAG, but I didn't have any money. And she lent me the money and said I could pay her back. I owe her a deep debt, debt, debt of gratitude. Yeah. And $900. Yes. And $900. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, um, it was, I'd never really talked about this stuff on air before. It's so nice to do a deep dive on that stuff. But You're anyway, welcome. that's what, that's what the podcast is all about. So people who listen in can hear about everybody's journey because everyone has a different journey to where they've gotten to and the lessons they've learned along the way. And sure. I also think that stuff is fascinating as well. Well, I mean, part of it, too, was about expanding my heart. You know, when I was at Carnegie, I fell in love for the first time. You know, I uh, I really got into music and got my first guitar uh, handed to me from my friend Ben, who's still a friend of mine. 
Um, you know, there were all sorts of things. I went to my first Grateful Dead concert. I mean, there were all these like growth things that I was doing that was very, all of which were very healing for me, although I didn't realize it at the time. You know, they were very important turning points in my, in my life. Um, and, and, um, you know, and all of those led me to realize that I really wanted, like theater was the thing. I decided I wanted to do theater. So I was moving to New York. Um, you know, Los Angeles wasn't an option for me because that's not the career that I wanted. And the second I got to New York because of all the film work I'd done in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. um, and in part because of Carnegie Mellon, um, I started booking like Law and Order and, and I was on a soap opera for a while. And like, uh, um, you know, I started booking all these TV movies and stuff like that back when they did those. I did TV movies for Hallmark, you know, back in the day. Um, and yeah, so it was- All Christmas movies. Yeah, it's all Christmas movies. You know, this was a horse racing movie with mm -hmm. a guy named Robert Urick called The Horse for Danny. Um, uh, and uh, I got to play the, a bookie, but I had to be kind of a, a like a, a, a diet bookie because the racetrack that we were filming at didn't wanna, didn't wanna um, have a bad thing said about horse racing. So I had to be kind of like, I, the, the movie couldn't quite be as shady as, as, as you know, I, what I believe the real horse racing industry is. Um, so we had to, it was sort of like, you know, Hallmark, the Hallmark version of horse racing, you know, yeah. minus all of the steroids and happening. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so unexpectedly I had this TV and film career and there, there was, there were theater opportunities that came up. I, I, um, I had like three or four callbacks for rent. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, met Jonathan Larson and thought he was amazing and, and, you know, a lot of other stuff too. Um, but the theater thing just wasn't really hitting the way that I, that I thought it would. And it, instead it was all TV and film and a lot of commercials. Yeah. So where, when did you eventually hit your theater mark? Like when did the theater happen for you? Well, there was a, there was a false run at it. I think the, I think the real, I think the real moment that I hit it was when I got cast in, I got cast in Corpus Christi, the Terrence McNally play, um, which is which was very controversial, and the, the there were a group of of Catholics that were super against us um, because it was Terrence McNally's version of the of the of the Jesus story, and in his his version of Jesus for himself was that Jesus was queer. And so were his disciples. And so, you know, um, it caused uh, a lot of protests. We had to have uh, gun checks uh, coming into the theater. We had a, mag what is it called? A magnometer. A metal um, detector? Yeah, metal detector. There were drug sniffing dogs that would come into the theater to, because there were bomb threats and stuff like that. And, and it was a really crazy, but it was an important piece of, of theater literature. And uh, I got cast as a lead character in it. And then I got cast in a DreamWorks movie at the same time. And because I was so broke, I had to take the movie, but I called back Manhattan Theater Club and I asked them if I could understudy when I got back. And I ended up understudying four parts. So I actually ended up going on and did get to do the play for real, which was pretty cool. So, yeah, so that, so I'm full circle now, now that I'm back at MTC, mm -hmm. you know, they gave me my, really my first acting job in New York, so. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Again, fucking love the collaboration, but we'll get there. Okay. So I'm speaking of collaboration. Yeah. You work a lot with your wife with writing and she directs pretty much everything you guys write. Is that 
correct? That's true. Uh, she directs movie? She directs all our theater. We direct movies together. Yes. Yeah. I know that you directed something called The Aftermath, which is based on a book she wrote. Uh, no, or, we directed. Think, you, you've or, got uh, two no, I, Yes. It's something about home. Now I'm almost almost home. Yes, thank Almost you. Almost home, yeah. Uh, that I, was based on a I young adult. Correct. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> We're almost home. It was based on a young adult novel that she wrote, and um, this wonderful producer and uh, and a group of people uh, gave us the money to make the movie. And it, it's all about homeless teens in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a young movie, but it's a good movie. It's beautifully shot. Um, uh, Arlene Mueller was the uh, was the director of photography, and we had a wonderful cast of young people. Uh, um, uh, and it was great shooting in Hollywood. And, and so, so our movies, we're about to do another micro budget film that my daughter and I are starring in. We're going to go out to Minnesota and shoot that. Um, so that's going to be kind of full circle for me again, you know, after the year that I've had, it's all about going full circle with as many things as possible. Well, we'll, we'll get full circle back there. Um, so let's talk about the exonerated. So I think okay. we just celebrate its 20th anniversary or about to 20 or 25. I think it's been, a, yeah, we started to, at a certain point, there were so many offshoots and productions of it. We started to call it the exon and on and honorated. Um, uh, that was the joke in the cast. Anyway, it's not as funny when it comes out of my mouth. Um, but, I, I laughed. So oh, you did? Oh, I okay. Did. All right. Yeah, so maybe so we had a few. Yeah. No, sorry. So where did the idea of this play come about? Well, um, let's see. Jessica and I had fallen in love uh, or started, began to fall in love about three months previous to working on it. And she invited me out uh, as one of our first dates uh, um, to a death penalty conference that was being held at Columbia, I believe. I believe it was Columbia. Um, and uh, we were watching various programs and getting into various workshops and asking questions of lawyers and stuff like that. But the most poignant thing was there was a there was a guy who'd had his confession tortured out of him by a police commander in Chicago. And he was one of a group called the Death Row 10, all of whom had no evidence against them except these quote unquote confessions, which were which were um, which were coerced uh, using. I mean, I'm talking about like phone books to the back of the head, um, you know, uh, electricity run through people's genitalia, uh, stuff like that. I mean, I think I've got my it's been a long time since I studied that case. So I, but it was it was it was techniques that he'd actually learned in Vietnam. And um, and so this one guy was uh, on the phone with us. Uh, one of these one of these uh, one of these people who'd been um, wrongfully convicted, and it was just a phone call from the prison, like hooked up to a microphone, and um, and within two minutes or three minutes of him talking to us and taking questions from the audience over this phone, like people were crying all around us. And Jess and I started writing notes to each other of like, we need to do something. Let's do something like the Laramie project. Let's, we should travel around. I mean, like I have the original piece of paper. It's even got a sketch of a stage with like, you know, eight chairs and a light bulb above it, you know, which ended up kind of being the stage design for the ultimate production in New York. Um, and, um, and it, it, it was very moving to us and it angered me a great deal. But I looked around and I said to Jessica that everybody there was already, it was preaching to the converted. Everybody there was already on the side of the guy who was in, who was in prison. 
And that wasn't the audience that this needed to reach. We needed to reach people in the Midwest and in Illinois and in, and in you know, um, in what are derisively referred to as the flyover states. We need to reach my grandfather. And, and how, do, how do we do that? And so we hit upon the idea of going around the country and we ended up interviewing 40 exonerated death row inmates on the phone and about, about 20 in person. Um, and, uh, and it was a, it was, uh, we'd made four trips to different parts of the United States. We like slept in our car. Um, you know, we took our dog with us on one trip, one of the trips. Um, like, uh, it was very, um, it was very, very, um, uh, a very low rent situation for us. We didn't stay in a lot of fancy hotels. We stayed with friends mm -hmm. and we just conducted all these interviews and got them all together on a little radio shack tape recorder. And um, didn't quite know what we were going to do then. And we started workshopping them with actor friends of ours. So we would do transcripts and workshop them. And we were we were sort of at the forefront of the, the, the second or third wave of verbatim theater in the United States. Now, other people had done this before us. Emily Mann had done Execution of Justice. Um, uh, uh, you know, there was uh, uh, Anna Devere Smith's Twilight Los Angeles. Um, there were there were other people who had engaged with this. I was a big fan of Studs Terkel, uh, who wrote a book called Working um, um, about uh, people in different professions in the U.S. But we were sort of at the forefront of a new wave of of what people call verbatim theater or documentary theater. And before I knew it, um, I was doing a TV show um, with a guy named Bob Balaban, who like knows everybody in the universe and has been in everything. He was in the original film of Midnight Cowboy. Um, and he's just been a, a New York stalwart actor for years and years, producer, actor, director. And um, and I asked him if he would take a look at the rough transcript that we had. And after about a week, he called us and he said, would you mind if I asked some friends to look at this? And we said, sure, you can show it to some friends. And he called us a week after that and said, Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon want to do the play. And I was like, well, that doesn't suck. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, so they ended up doing, we organized three readings right around the elections, the Gore, uh, Bush elections. And, um, you know, for or, three weeks, or we, I will say simpler times, simpler times. Simpler yes. Times. <laughs> Weirdly simpler times. There was, yeah. we thought that was anger flying around then we had no idea what was coming. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we did some readings and they were not allowed to be reviewed, but it was clear that the production needed to happen. And then nine 11 happened. And uh, we thought theater was over and there would never be theater again. But then Tim Robbins called us from Los Angeles and asked if we wanted to do it at the Actors Gang in L.A. And that launched our writing careers. That's great. Um, yeah. I just I'm curious to know how you were able to get these interviews. How did you go about getting interviews from these exonerated people? <sighs> We hooked up with a couple of organizations. Um, the Innocence Project, because of Jessica's activism, she had been in touch with a few organizations, and we contacted the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University, which is instrumental in getting exonerated people off death row. Um, we contacted the Innocence Project and a, and a couple other organizations to sort of like prove that we were like okay people and um and then uh, see if they could hook them hook us up with some of their people that they had helped and the people who were the most enthusiastic about meeting us those are the people that we met while we were on the road and like then at a certain phase bob was like okay we've got these interviews but we need to go into like 
court records and stuff. So then we then we did another round of going on the road to go down to Florida and go through court records boxes in Florida. Um, you know, and having having never gone through court record boxes before, it's super interesting because what you're presented first is the prosecutor's version of the case of like how the prosecutor lays things out and you go, Oh my God, you know, this is so compelling. And then the defense attorney comes in and takes everything apart, you know, and there's all these dirty things like coercion and lies and racism and, you know, um, people hiding the truth and stuff like that. And it, it, for me, as the grandson of a highway patrolman and the great grandson of a judge, it was very distressing um, how the justice system was meted out in the United States, especially with people of color. Like, I, I really thought that everybody in an idealized way because i'd been in the theater for so long that everybody was on equal ground and that's just that's just not the case um you know i i see the prison system now as a, as a direct extension of slavery from from an a a a a jim crow relic um uh, you know, it's it's a, a completely unfair rigged system and it's meant to control certain populations. I mean, the justice system isn't broken, broken. it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. And that is a that is a, a shame and we should be better about it. Yeah, I'm trying to find a good transition from that to the next to the next things. So, um, so with the exonerated, it pretty much kicked off your writing career. So once that show, what was the next play that you guys did together? The next play we did, we went to Jordan and interviewed Iraqi refugees during the war. Mm -hmm. Um, We wanted to do something high stakes uh, in in the wake of the war. I can't exactly remember the timing, but we went and interviewed Iraqi refugees that our tax dollars had, had, had bombed uh, basically and um, and were welcome with welcomed with open arms and with some stern lessons mm-hmm. um, but uh, but you know it was uh, I, I, I feel like the onus is on uh, taxpayers and stuff before you go bomb a bunch of people you should really meet them first and so we did it backwards we you know we we met them after um and we were very interested in what effects war wars have on relatively apolitical people who are just trying to live their lives you know pharmacists uh uh, uh store owners moms um we talked to a woman who had, was a christian who was there and because the there was no real structure after the war militias came after her and her family and her car was blown up she was the only survivor her uh her baby was blown out of her arms oh my god and it was one of the hardest stories i've ever heard and and uh that got me activated um in and again you know for the first couple of plays that we wrote it was my anger that was carrying me through because i just as a as a buddhist i believe in a no harm policy i believe in a love everyone all the time policy mm-hmm. and um it's really hard to live that in the world when when there's so much cruelty Um, but you know, theater is a way to, is a way to people's hearts and you can put people in the shoes of protagonists. They might have not considered to be protagonists before they walked in there, you know? So just something that came to mind, cause you mentioned you're Buddhist. Do, does being following that, does, do you think that affects how you approach characters or playing different types of characters? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's an actor recently I read a quote by them um, you have to have a certain kind of love for your character and you know for 
characters who are reprehensible, uh, you, you, it's more about point of view than it is about love. But when you're playing a character like I am now in the collaboration, uh, Bruno Bischoffberger, what what does he love is one of the essential like sort of questions you ask about a character before you either play them or write them. Mm -hmm. And what do they love? And, um, you know, in the case of Bruno Bischoffberger in the collaboration, I decided that he loves his artists and he wants them to grow um, much like a parent wants to see their children grow. And he wants to encourage them and, and encourage them to new heights. He's not in it just for the money. He's in it because he, he loves art and he loves artists and he loves what art can do to the human spirit. So, you know, I think as a, I think as a Buddhist, this sort of um, loving kindness philosophy that we carry with us uh, or attempt to carry with us because we're all, we're all flawed and, and blow it sometimes. Um, I think that, I think that has worked its way into our work um, more than, more than, you know, it, I think we're great with character the way some people are great with plot. Mm-hmm. You know, plot is a harder road to hoe for us because that's got more math in it. Well, I think it's interesting that you say that because you mentioned earlier with Cool Hand Luke, how all of the different characters, not just the Paul Newman character, they're all so fascinating. So that made me think with your writing, do you concentrate more on the characterization of all these different characters as opposed to anything else? Also a great question. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, thank no, thank you for for um, um, uh, for setting it up there for me. I, I mean, an interview is a lot like volleyball, isn't it? Like one of the people posts the ball and the other one slams it over the net. Um, yeah, I mean, character is where we start for everything. Everything that we do is character based, mm -hmm. and so if you've got a full outline of the character and their history, at least on a piece of paper, that doesn't mean you have to reveal all of that in, in what you're writing. You just have to know it so you know how they'll respond when put in a certain situation. Um, we took a writing class with Edward Albee once, and he said, you know, throw two characters in a room and see what happens. And then the second rule of thumb that he gave us was avoid the obvious and do the inevitable. Like, you know, there's an inevitability to what a character must ultimately do with another character, provided that, you know, you've done the research and know their history, which is why a lot of the stuff that we're writing now for TV is like really historically based because mm -hmm. um, there's all that research available out there about fascinating people and and um, and, uh, you know, uh, certainly being in something like the collaboration where the character is semi-fictional, but the characters are based on real people. It's, it's a super interesting thing to see what kind of research you run across that sort of floats your boat or like ignites something in your synapses to make you go, ah, okay, I get it. I get this guy, you know? Well, that, so, sorry, you were going to say something? That's, I mean, that's our approach to writing too. You know, yeah. what's going to make people get the person, you know, what's going to allow them to get the person. So that that brings us to the play um how to be a rock critic or am yeah. I saying it correctly? You're saying it you're saying it correctly. Yes. Thank God you said your character's name in the collaboration because I was going to be like Bruno last name cuz I am right. terrible with reading names. Um so I like I'm sure like many humans was introduced to Lester Bangs via Almost Famous. Yeah. Um and by I the greatest by the greatest actor of my generation Phil Hoffman was the greatest yeah. actor of our generation yeah. and I feel his loss every day. I, I used to do, I used to do merch at Broadway shows and there was maybe like two times I saw him and he uh -huh. would always just like look at the merch booth and did one of those like 
hi, how you doing? Smiles like, uh -huh. like <laughs> <laughs> I always find it interesting when like somebody very well known passes away. They always just like they always concentrate on like one character that they played and he played mm -hmm. so many. And when he passed, there's a quote he does in Almost Famous where I'm probably paraphrasing it. It's the only true currency in this brain bankrupt world is what you share with somebody else when you're lonely or something like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 And so that was like the quote that like was coming out when he passed. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I was very moved by him and I was very interested in this guy, Lester Bangs, because like I mentioned, when my parents got divorced, um, I had to go <laughs> live with my, my cousin, uh, my cousins and my aunt and uncle in green Bay, Wisconsin. But my cousin, Greg had, um, under his bed, he had, he had an electric guitar, um, he had copies of Cream Magazine and copies of Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. And I believe that was the time that Lester was back at Rolling Stone for a brief period of time before he got kicked out again. Um, and that's I that I believe is the time that I discovered Lester Bangs um, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, was very intrigued by his writing because it was so gonzo and so out of there. I also discovered Hunter Thompson at the same time. So the fact that these writers were inserting themselves in the stories, I was like, well, how dare they? But it's thrilling, you know, that they're that they're present in the story that they're writing about. It's not just about these giant rock stars up on a mountain somewhere. They're bringing them to me. So it feels like I know the rock stars better, like they're on the ground with me, like we're on an even playing field and I'm looking them in the eye. Yeah. And so to be able to recreate that experience on stage, what we did was we approached Lester's estate after I spent a couple of weeks reading to Jessica from a collection of his work uh, out loud. And she was like, I don't know how this is a play. I don't know how this is a play. And then finally she was like, I don't know how this is a play, but it's fascinating. Yeah. So we contacted his estate and uh, down in down in Austin mm -hmm. and um, and asked if we could have access to everything published and unpublished. And uh, they said, absolutely. And uh, after, fortunately, Exonerated was playing down there so that they went and saw it and saw that we were for real. And um, we spent the next like two years just cataloging the entire file, all the, all the, there were like five or six boxes of stuff oh, wow. um, that hadn't been organized in a while. And uh, I photocopied everything at a Kinko's. I spent like six hours a day at a photocopier because it was all onion skin paper and I had to do individual pages. Um, and we just started cataloging uh, by subject all of Lester's writing, you know, on drugs, on Blondie, on, you know, the punk movement. Um, and eventually we just started doing our workshop thing and decided it would be best if it was a one man play where I would play Lester. So at the end of the day, after going through tens of thousands of pages of, of his work, um, it, I had to memorize uh, 50 pages of, 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 of monologue. Um, and uh, we presented that on stage and it made its way across the country to Steppenwolf and other places. And the cool thing about doing it was a lot of his friends came, a lot of fellow journalists, rock journalists came and a lot of rock stars came uh, or people who I consider rock stars. Um, and then when we got to New York, like girlfriends, friends, photographers that he worked with, people that he worked with at Cream Magazine, you know, people that he worked with at Rolling Stone, they all came out of the woodwork and they were all very supportive. And I was, and in a way I was meeting all these hero journalists of mine, you know, um, 
you know, in my imaginary life, I've always been a journalist and, and, but it was, it was hard. I mean, you know, you're playing, you're playing against Philip Seymour Hoffman, whether you want to or not, because they have, people have an image in their head. And because the play was verbal and very physical, I think that people took my Lester as, as my Lester and did, and stopped comparing after about the first five or 10 minutes of the play, because they knew it was a different beast that I was kind of tackling. Well, that's interesting you say that too, because Almost Famous is currently on Broadway right now. Mm-hmm. And I am a huge Almost Famous fan. Like I wrote a paper about it in college. Wow. And, yeah. And uh, it's been, when you mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman, he actually had the flu when he uh-huh. the movie and he did it for the course of like, I think two days. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Almost Famous nerd. Uh, Brad uh-huh. Pitt was supposed to play Russell Hammond at one point. Sarah Pauly was supposed to play uh, Penny Lane. Kate Hudson was supposed to play the sister. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And everybody got flopped around and well, yeah, that's I the think, Hollywood thing. You yeah. Know. I think there was like a mutual decision between Russell Crowe, not Russell Crowe. What's his Cameron. name? Cameron. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Cameron Crowe and Brad Pitt. And they were just kind of like, you know, this isn't working. I don't remember why Sam Paul, uh, so, sorry, Sarah Pauly left. Um, but yeah, Kate Hudson actually was like, let me audition for this. Let me, and she talks about it too. Like I was watching, I, I enjoy YouTube clips, you know, when you're bored, just go on YouTube and you go into oh, like, me too. Yeah. Viral, yeah. Yeah. So there was this one, um, thing of different clips from Howard Stern about all these different people talking about like these huge roles that they got. And she mentioned almost famous how she was originally cast as Anita. And she said to Cameron, like, let me audition for Penny Lane. Wow. Let me do it. So it's very interesting. You have like such a well-known loved movie and then you have like the stage production and all of these new people are doing their own interpretations. Like for me, as like a theater fan and as just a normal human, I like to think like you kind of have to remind yourself like this is their own interpretation of this person. Like it's not the same. You can't compare even though you want to and you shouldn't. So Uh I understand what you're saying with the Lester Bangs thing. Yeah, well, and I mean, it was like a real education for me and audience engagement. It really opened me up in Mm -hmm. terms of in terms of being able to talk and listen to an audience. Before I did the Lester Banks thing, I was very frightened of audiences. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I I saw them as as some other, as some enemy, rather than as part of the process. And our one man play opened with me doing a lot of like interacting with the audience, which is Mm -hmm. always a tricky thing. You know, because you don't know what somebody's going to say. But I learned I learned a, a modicum of control and freedom. Uh, that the control and freedom can kind of dance together when you're doing something like that. And and then of course now we're making the the Lester Banks biopic. We're going to make the movie, um, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, because uh, I read that you guys are going to turn that into a film. Do you have you don't have to say maybe mm-hmm. off recording, but uh-huh. do you have somebody in mind for the part? Yeah, we already cast somebody. We uh, there's a wonderful actor who you may know. He's on Severance now. His name is Michael Chernus. Um, he's a lovely actor and he's perfect. He did a couple of readings for us. And usually you're like, oh, you know, we got to get a, we got to get like the biggest star to play this so we can get financing. But there's so many interesting parts in the movie that can be covered by different characters. Michael, Michael deserves to be a big star. Michael deserves to, because everybody in Hollywood loves him. Everybody in the New York theater scene loves him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, we did a reading and, and uh, Cameron actually came to the reading. So, you know, we're working out 
we're working out who's going to be involved right now. So, but other than, but we've got Michael, who's, who's the perfect Lester, which I'm pretty excited about. Well, if it films in New York, I'll be happy to be an extra. I'll just like stand in the back. Please come oh by, and, come by and come be an extra, but come by and visit us as a journalist too. I mean, I think it would I be I would love to. I have a BFA in acting that I haven't used in years. I'm okay, right on. Yeah. <laughs> you know my podcast now. So I'm coal country. It's mm. a country, right? It's it's coal country is uh, uh, a because I, I I keep saying like is it country or county so I know that's based on um well why don't you explain what it is to to the people listening this is another writing thing that yes, um, my wife and I we're in like the writing zone of your career we're right? in the writing zone um the yes. coal country was a is a uh, it's a play based on uh, interviews with survivors and family members of twenty nine miners who were killed in what I believe was an avoidable explosion in, uh, in West Virginia. Uh, these 29 men were just doing their jobs, Democrats, Republicans, black, white, and um, this explosion took them due to an amount of malfeasance on certain people's parts. And, um, and um, there was, I believe, no real justice brought forward for these 29 men and their families. I mean, coming from a small town, when I saw interviews with the people who were related to these men after the word came out that they had all died mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and had been abused over the years, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I couldn't help but see my uncles and my cousins and, and a lot of the people that I grew up, you know, country people, like rural people. Yeah. And I saw the faces of every relative I ever had and every, every family member that, you know, ever worked a, a, a job that required labor, that sacrificed their body. And uh, it made, again, very, made me very angry. Um, and um, Jessica and I started talking about how we would do that particular interview process and it was a few years after we given people time to to process what had happened to them and uh, we reached out to a lot of people and you know a lot of people didn't call us back and those people respected their privacy but a lot of people did and wanted to talk about it and then at a certain point i said you can't do a play about appalachia about west virginia without music and Jessica said, well, who are we going to get to do the music? And we both looked at each other and we'd been friends with Steve Earle for a long time, the, the all country musician. And, and we said, well, Steve's got to do the music for the play. So we set out to write a play with music where uh, the characters would be speaking to the audience. And then that would be interspersed with, uh, with Steve um, on guitar and banjo doing, uh, doing songs to sort of accent and highlight and chapterify the play. Mm -hmm. And it became this really expansive, beautiful piece um you know audible if people want to hear it uh, audible does a does it has a version of it that's really beautiful it's yeah. like radio that's theater i was introduced to the show was because mm -hmm. i haven't listened to it yet because i don't have audible but mm -hmm. um, that's how i was made aware of it because of audible because they were doing it at the minima lane theater is that mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. At, oh, no. Uh, at the Sorry, Cherry Lane. Cherry oh, Lane. Down the street from the Metal Lane. Yeah. Okay. Metal Lane is where they do most of their stuff, but they, yeah. the public and them really wanted to get the play back up post pandemic. So they did it at the Cherry Lane. And then, you know, and then ultimately the ultimate expression of it was we uh, we're working on a documentary about it now, but the ultimate expression of it was we brought the play back to the community a few years later after the pandemic. 
uh, had sort of settled down and mm -hmm. did a performance for the people of, of Beckley, West Virginia. And um, a lot of family members came and there were a lot of tears and there was a lot of, there was a lot of um, uh, uh, yelling and a lot of, um, a lot of uh, uh, passion and a lot of, um, you know, go get them, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and uh, we were really warmly embraced by the community there. And I think if, uh, if, uh, you know, if things ever go down badly in this country, I've got a lot of friends in West Virginia I can lean on. <laughs> uh, so speaking of the pandemic, I think this uh -huh. might be the last piece of writing we talk about. So during the pandemic, you and your wife, Jessica, wrote and she also directed a virtual play called The Line. Do you want mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I was terrified. The pandemic terrified me. It it um, it isolated me from my friends. It shut down the original production of Coal Country, mm -hmm. um, which had just gotten wonderful reviews. And eight days later, we closed, which was a very strange experience. Mm -hmm. um, it isolated me from my community. Um, it made me very scared. Um, and uh, it made me scared for my kid, who is a like, you know, a little younger than a teenager when it started. It made me scared for my wife. And I was uh, selfishly scared for my own life as well. And um, I decided for myself, Jessica had different reasons for wanting to do it, but we talked to Oscar Eustace at the Public Theater and we decided that we wanted to do a digital play based on interviews conducted with nurses and doctors and ambulance drivers, first responders, mm -hmm. because there was this, there was this weird lies. I mean, we were, you could see, you could hear the ambulances all night long outside our house because we live near an ambulance dispatch and you could see the trucks when you'd go into Manhattan, you could see the trucks filled with bodies lined up outside the hospitals, you know, the temporary morgues, I guess they call them. And, and, but there was this weird thing happening in the country of people saying it was a hoax and our city was hurting. And, and that was re-traumatizing because we, what we needed was not that nonsense. We really needed help mm -hmm. and we needed, we needed nurses and doctors and, uh, and, and money and attention. And this was, this was the Petri dish for the rest of the country. And we wanted to warn people that, you know, that, that this was coming and um, we couldn't think of a better way than talking to the very heroic folks who sacrifice their lives sometimes and their bodies and their time and their energy to, to save us without asking what our political um, leanings were. You know, when you go to a hospital, they don't ask whether you're an independent or a Democrat or a Republican or a socialist or whatever, they just treat you. And, um, and, you know, I mean, if you're lucky enough to get in, there's other problems with the, with the hospital system, as we discovered. But like with a lot of our plays, like, yes, the play was about COVID, but it also became about like inequities in the, in the hospital, in the, in the uh, medical system. Mm -hmm. um, these other themes started to emerge about, you know, that we really live in two Americas when it comes to medical care. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was, uh, I guess, 100,000 people saw it online on YouTube. It was put up for free. Yeah. And it was, uh, and then, I don't, I guess it's tacky of me to talk about it, but I'm just going to give the information and people can decide whether it's tacky or not. But, and then there was an article that came out in the New York Times about uh, it being eligible for, um, for uh, one of the big writing prizes. And that, uh, that, I, I just reposted it on my Twitter and said, I'm going to bed. 
<laughs> I feel tacky about that at all. I couldn't, I couldn't, but I, I couldn't, I certainly couldn't deal. I can't even say the name of it because it, it, it's, it's too much. Um, and, and I, I, uh, but it, but it, it did also open up, uh, it was one of the first two digital, two or three digital performances that was done nationally in the theater. So we had to build a whole platform for it, for digital theater, which other people got better at. But then, you I, know, I will you don't know this because we've literally just met, but mm-hmm. during the pandemic, um, I was a part of a reading company and we put on a lot of virtual play reading. So I directed. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah, I'd be I I'm going to let you finish, but then we're going to talk about the aspects of doing virtual theater as opposed to live theater. And I just okay, great. Take on that, but please continue. Well, what was your experience directing? I mean, did you find it satisfying? I mean, did you find it was like killing time or did you find it was artistically satisfying to you? Well, I always say that it all started because of a Facebook post. So back in like 2020, my dream show to direct has always been The Shape of Things by Neil Butte, like since mm. And I noticed that a lot of people were doing these Facebook readings. They were just like getting together, doing like a Shakespeare play and just like posting them on Facebook. Mm. So I put on there, I want to do a reading of The Shape of Things. Like, if you're interested, let me know. I thought like friends would reach out to me. And there's this actor who I had on my podcast named Tim Robuto. Mm-hmm. And when he came on the podcast, he mentioned one of his dream roles was Adam in The Shape of Things. And it's mm. like, oh, that's my favorite. Like, I want to direct that. So that was kind of like how it was born. And that was the catalyst to doing all of those shows. Mm-hmm. Um, And now I have a relationship with Neil Abude. And if you told me that, like, years ago when I was in college I, like I would have his email and I can like email him happy holidays can't uh-huh. work with you again god willing right on. Cross, knock on wood he would write back and be like happy holidays hopefully the same <laughs> right on right on uh, yeah so that was kind of like how it was born and that way is like May of 2020 and I've noticed that you know doing those readings as time went on because we we did a bunch of readings like in 2020 and then we like rebirthed a new reading company and our readings just got better and better because we used a platform called StreamYard and we all just got better and smarter with how we did all of the things. And, you know, for me, at least from a director standpoint, I feel like the actors were just so happy to be doing something. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I can't really say what it was like for them because, you know, I told them, you can read your script however you want. Just make sure at times you're looking directly at the camera so it doesn't look like you're reading the whole time. So I think it was mm-hmm. more of a challenge for them than it was for me directing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, we we found that the technique for doing online work is very different, you know. Yeah. And um, I think had I been given more, if we'd had a bigger budget or had been given more time, I would have liked to have experimented with multiple cameras on each person yeah. to get them from different angles and stuff like that. But, you know, and then there was a learning curve because like all of us now have these fancy microphones and earphones and stuff like that. But at the time that that stuff was kind of not in everybody's house, you know, yeah. so we had well, to provide what... that stuff for people. Yeah, that's why I said like over time it got better. Like even the system StreamYard got better over time because I think mm-hmm. they, they were realizing that because of the pandemic, people were using StreamYard for different virtual things. Like my friend used it for a virtual work event. Uh, we used it to stream these videos on YouTube. 
and mm-hmm. we were able to pick backgrounds and we had somebody do like these really amazing intro videos and some shows had intermission. So we had like the actors say why they should donate to either the actors fund now the entertainment fund or Broadway mm-hmm. cares on the play. And it was just really great. And even um some of the playwrights were very supportive. And I remember we did a reading of uh Sex with Strangers and the playwright. Mm-hmm like came into stream merit after and like said hi to everybody, which was really. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. It's cool when that happens, when you get to work with your heroes, but it it's yeah. uh it's, it's, it's a rare and beautiful thing. I mean, you know, I'm so blessed having come out of this year in February, I had a, everybody kind of knows now, but in February I had an aneurysm. Yeah. A brain, well, a brain well, aneurysm. Let's talk about it because. Okay, um, great. Yeah. It kind of brings up the whole, what led you to the collaboration because you've been, I know you did off Broadway, the play disgraced, which mm-hmm. I did not see, but I Wikipedia what happened and mm-hmm. it, it gets, it goes there. Um, yeah. Yeah. so, and I know that, well, why don't you talk about disgraced and everything that happened with us? Yeah. Um, well, uh, like I, uh, I, the first thing that happened was, um, I did disgrace. Well, the first thing that happened was there was a, there was a, uh, the hurricane came in, the big hurricane. Were you here for that? Uh, 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 Sandy. San- Sandy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that. I'm, that I'm also could... from New York. So I. Oh, so you're a New Yorker. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so, um, you know, uh, uh, Sandy came through and um, I, I'd been, let me roll back a little bit further. Um, I'd auditioned for this play disgraced. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, um, uh, didn't, and, and got a call back and, and auditioned again via tape from the Sundance lab and didn't get it. And another wonderful actor got it, a guy who I really respect, who's great. And then about, they were a preview or two in, and I got a phone call that this wonderful actor that, uh, that had gotten the part had gotten very sick. Like, I don't to this day, I don't know what he got, but it was like not a cover story. He was super, super sick and couldn't couldn't be in any theater. He had to like lay down for three months and, and not move. And um, and I I, uh, I they asked if I would come in and do the part. And I said, sure. Um, when do you want? They're like, well, you're on stage tonight on book because we can't cancel the the thing. But would you come in? And I said, sure. And I went in around this time the hurricane happened so i was having to go back and forth eight miles each way to the theater on my bike um and um i went in and i replaced uh uh this actor in 48 hours the publicity department there even asked if i would like do a newspaper article about it but i really didn't want to this you know an actor had just lost their part because they got sick and i felt it would have been tacky and taking advantage to like make any big fanfare about it but you know i started on a wednesday i learned the i learned all the lines for this play where i'm on stage for an hour by friday and um and then i spent the entire post hurricane thing going back and forth on my bike to the theater and uh and and we got the best shape of your life writing i was i was in great shape i was in great shape and and i was doing a play at lincoln center which is awesome (laughs) yeah and then when it came time for the play to go to broadway because it i mean it won it won a pulitzer Mm -hmm. um for whatever reason and they have their own reasons and i'm really not bitter about it in any way shape or form but they decided to go with a different actor even though we'd gotten great notices and stuff like that and 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 i it it really bummed me out. And it was at that point that I really realized 
um, uh, a hard lesson about the theater that it's not necessarily a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. And, but that also got me off my butt to do the Lester Bangs play, which had been sort of backburnered for a long time. So it was a blessing in disguise ultimately, but it broke my heart because I'd like worked so hard to like make things roll the way that they needed to roll and, and to be a good dependable uh, uh, collaborator. And, and uh, so it, but it got me off my butt. It got me writing more. It got me doing more theater. I mean, we did our movie after that. So like it, it really, it was really a blessing in disguise in a way. And then, um, and then I did some more plays. Uh, I went out and did something regionally after that. And, and, um, uh, and then I can't remember, I did a play at the public theater that was about Martin Luther King by Tracy Scott Wilson, um, I did some other stuff and then really focused on TV and film. I was really focused on cracking the mysteries of those things. Yeah. And then cut to, um, you know, however many years later, um, uh, last February, uh, we were getting Cold Country up and running. Jess was directing. I was taking a couple of days off to just let her do her director thing and stay out of the way. Mm-hmm. And I was on therapy with, uh, uh, therapy online with my therapist uh, here down in my office on the couch. It's a good thing I was on the couch. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, um, I said, oh, I have a headache and I had a seizure and I passed out. Oh and um, there was nobody here at the house except for my writing assistant who was hanging out upstairs for a brief period of time. And uh, the, my therapist called the ambulance, then my wife, then my writing assistant let the ambulance in and they got me to a horrible hospital uh, here in Brooklyn, which is the worst hospital in New York. And uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't get a CAT scan of me for almost four hours. My wife had to fight and fight and fight and fight to get a CAT scan. When they finally did, they saw that I'd had what's called a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, and then they got me to a specialty hospital in Manhattan where they where they started to work on me. And um, and uh, now this kind of subarachnoid hemorrhage that you have, it's, it happens in your brain. And it's, um, it's, uh, there, there's, there's, unless you're getting a brain scan every year or something, there's no way of knowing that it's going to happen to you. It can kind of, it's kind of come out of nowhere. It's like God tipping over your bucket, you know, screw your bucket list. He's going to tip it over. And, um, and about 50% of people who have this don't even make it past the first 24 hours. They just die. And of the 50% who do make it, about 80% have some kind of cognitive or physical struggles that they have to encounter and, and wrestle with. Um, and I got really, really lucky. I'm more fortunate than most. I'm the exception, not the rule. But, um, but I, I, I uh, had a, a stent. They did surgery. I mean, they put a stent up through your leg. They go up through an artery or a vein in your leg. And then they insert a stent into your brain, just like when somebody gets a stent in their heart. And they opened it up and it stopped the, it stopped the hemorrhage and, and, uh, and I guess it's reconstructing the vessel now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I got very, very lucky. I, I almost died and it's, and that event in and of itself has completely changed my life. Yeah. And there's a direct connection to being on discreet, to being in, um, to being in the collaboration. You, can I keep going? Yeah, no, please. Okay, I'm, great, I'm great. listening. Okay, great. Other questions, if I have one. Well, yeah, just jump in because I I'm a talker. Um, but, but honestly, Eric, you can talk away. No. Judgment. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, but uh, but what happened then is, you know, it took me a a cup about six weeks to recover, and then all of a sudden, an actor in our cast got COVID, so I replaced him on stage at um 
at Coal Country. So I got to act in my own play for four performances before I handed it over to a wonderful understudy named Joe. Um, and and um, then uh, I, I needed to rest some more. Um, I almost overexerted myself doing that, but I needed to rest some more. And so we decided that we would take a vacation to Europe. And uh, uh, on my way to see a friend that I'd done a TV show with, oh, also over the over the the uh, the pandemic, like I was on a TV show that was like shooting during the pandemic, which was crazy too. Was but anyway, it was called For Life, and it starred my one of my best friends, Nicholas Pinnock. Mm -hmm. um, he's a wonderful actor. He's a Brit. Um, and uh, I went to visit him in in uh, London, and then on the way, a friend of ours, Indira, was in a play, and she was in a play with Amelia Clark, who's from uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, she's yep. the mother of dragons, yep. and Amelia has had two aneurysms. She was in, wasn't it? She played Nina in the Seagull, right? Yeah, she played Nina in the Seagull, and mm -hmm. and she's had two aneurysms and had a lot more struggles getting back than I did. And um, I'd read that an article that she'd written about everybody, of course, after I had my aneurysm is sending me Amelia Clark's article. And, and we, we met briefly after the play and had got in touch and were in contact, um, possibly about working together to do some fundraising for, for her organization called Same You, which is a, a organization that raises awareness about this kind of stuff. But I was so inspired by her performance, which was so beautiful and scintillating on stage, that by the time I got back to New York, I called my agents and I was sort of like, well, if Amelia Clark can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And um, maybe we should start looking for some more challenging stuff. And um, about six weeks later, eight weeks later, uh, the, uh, the, the opportunity to be in the collaboration opposite Paul Bettany, Jeremy Pope and Krista Rodriguez came up and I was just thrilled to be asked to join the cast. So was that a direct offer or did you have to audition for it? I auditioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 direct offer on some things. I'm at that weird point in my career where, like, I'm direct offer on about a third of the things that I do, but I'm still auditioning for larger things. And it was an audition on Zoom, which I'd never done before. I'd only been on tape before, so they, they yeah. gave me the option to go Zoom or on tape. And I was like, well, let's do Zoom. You know, it'll be fun. Um, and it it the character was just awesome, and the the uh, the the level of acting that Paul and Jeremy and Krista bring to the show is just uh, you got to be on your A game because they are completely wonderful and dependable, but also wonderfully unpredictable. So. Yeah. So what? So for an audition like that, for I don't know, is it different for a Broadway production as opposed to regional, off Broadway? But it's the same thing, pretty much. It's for me, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, it's just a slightly bigger audience. You know, um, you know, uh, it's it's you know, it's a. Uh, I think the lighthouse. Like somebody told me the difference between camera acting and and um, stage acting is the difference between a laser beam and a lighthouse, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the lighthouse is slightly bigger on Broadway because you have to reach a, a little bit larger of an audience. But for me, it's just felt like the same thing, you know. That's uh, and the, really a lot of a lot of credit goes to our director Kwame Kwearma, who just encourages a kind of familial, collegial, kind, um, uh, deeply felt rehearsal process where everybody's equal in the room and and everybody's allowed to express their opinion or their thoughts. Um, in a in a way that's not um, getting on other people's side of the street. So, 
you know, that, that was, that was great too, you know, and especially after having been in some situations in my career where it was, the director was abusive or an actor was like, uh, not great, great, offbeat, let's say, um, you know, it was such a relief to be in a place where it was completely safe and egoless, you know? Yeah. I feel like that's always the best. I mean, when I have directed these virtual readings, that's really like my experience, like one short play in college in these virtual readings, but uh-huh. right on. It's all yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. I always like to say it kind of starts from the top too, because I always try to let the actors be like, let's try whatever you want. And then if it doesn't work, we can try something else. And I like to think I'm a nice person. And then I never really like yelled at anybody. I mean, I did like lose my shit in one rehearsal because it was one actor, but I also at the same time didn't want to be like a complete asshole. But I think that (laughs) it all starts at the top and what you bring to the environment definitely affects everything else. Yeah, definitely. I I mean, like having spent so much time on both sides of the table now, both sides of the camera, both sides of the the rehearsal table, um, you know, I... One of the things about being on the other side of the table, I wish every actor had the opportunity to write or to create their own work or to 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 direct. Mm-hmm. Um, not because everybody's necessarily going to be good at those things, but the experience of being on the other side of the table actually teaches you and shows you how much work it takes to put one of these things up in the first place. Okay. And you imod- you immediately come in with more respect and less concern about yourself. So often the decisions that are being made, like, like the one with Disgraced, mm-hmm. so often decisions are being made for reasons that are completely invisible to you. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and you just ha- having a respect for that and a kind of a bias abiding like um uh, an abiding uh, uh understanding and love for that that mm-hmm. you know not just when things are going well but then when things are difficult you know it's not about you mm-hmm. you know it's 99 times out of 100 it's not about you mm-hmm. and that really loosened me up as an actor i mean like spending those years on the other side of the table spending years directing and 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 then switching back to acting and back and forth and back and forth i just became a better listener and a more respectful collaborator now that i understand what everybody's job is you know yeah and i agree because it's not always about the person because i would get into fights with like the fellow producers of these reading companies when i'm trying to figure out who i want to cast in something Mm -hmm. this person this person i'm like i don't see them in the part doesn't mean that they're a bad actor it's Mm -hmm. just that you know for me that's not who i'm envisioning Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It, you know it could just be down to whomever the person is envisioning or you might not be able to get the person you originally wanted you get somebody else so or, there's or, a million different reasons or chemistry i mean there's yeah. there's um there's uh <laughs> you know there was a casting thing on on um on uh on on coal country that i won't go too too deep into but two of the actors who came into audition were awesome mm-hmm. but they looked exactly like each other Mm. And and we wanted to hire both of them, but we realized that we couldn't because if they came on stage, you wouldn't know who you were looking at. I mean, it was it was it was uncanny how much they resembled each other. Yeah. So it was like, how do we differentiate them without like dyeing somebody's hair blonde? Well, that's that's not going to work. And then mm. other times it comes down to chemistry, you know, like you know, a certain chemical compound works in one situation and it won't in another, and and. And that all, it's just, it takes all the pressure off and it makes you more kind about, you know, the, the inevitable decisions that need to be made going into doing any kind of production. 
How did that work for your play virtually though? Because again, my experience is with like virtual readings. Mm -hmm. So with the line, how was that cast and chemistry and all that done? Because it was virtual and it wasn't a movie or a play in person. Well, it was cast. I mean, it was, again, we were doing it for the first time. We didn't understand, like, the first thing we should have asked people is, like, who's got these, who's got this kind of internet and who's got, you know, um, this kind of microphone and stuff. We should have been asking different questions at the start. But regardless, we got exactly the cast that we should have gotten. Um, That was done through the public theater's casting department. Um, you know, we were all still on the payroll in a way. So, um, so we counted on them. And then of course, like, you know, I wanted to hire, um, I wanted to hire Nicholas Pinnock, who's one of my best friends and I missed working with him. So we hired him. So we had, we had three time zones in that, in that broadcast, one in London, uh, uh, one in New York, and then somebody from California as well. So it was, it was pretty cool. It not one in New York, but a bunch in New York and then somebody from California as well. So it was pretty cool that we were doing it all over the world. It was a worldwide broadcast, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Ours was just like, I want this person reach out to their agent. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know what? It's actors want to work, you know, and like your dream person sometimes really comes through. So why not? Like, why not shoot the moon on it? You know, I do remember we did a reading of a Teresa Rebeck play, The Understudy, and I was in rehearsal Mm -hmm. with three actors. And one of the actors just had like so much pent up energy from like not working that even just the rehearsal performance, we're all crying, laughing because of what he was doing. Like at one point he like flails himself off of the chair, brings the camera down. It was just, yeah. That's awesome. That's, I mean, it was, it was good. It was good that we could all stay connected that way during the worst, worst, worst parts of it, you know, took a lot of patience, you know. And I think even the actors themselves are trying to figure out how to do all that stuff too. And then after a certain point, you know, they ended up like auditioning, sending in their self tapes from home and all that. And so Mm -hmm. they have to be like their lighting person, their camera person, their prop person all of the different things and I, isn't that kind of the same though with the self-tape though it is the era of self-tapes has made a very interesting for a, a very interesting series of of problems uh and 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 opportunities i mean it's opened up opportunities i think nationally for people to like tape from different parts of the country and and for it not to be just new york and california centric which can be very myopic in a way um Mm -hmm. so you're getting a good selection of people in another way, as a New York actor, it's like, well, all those character parts that that you know I could have gotten in New Orleans or Georgia or whatever, like a couple of years back, those some of those are being handled by by wonderfully fine actors down in Georgia, New Orleans, who actually like have the accent and live there. Do you know what I mean? So there's there's that side of it, but also you know it takes a certain amount of work to do that. You got to work with a reader, um, but you can be more intentional about what work you're putting out there in terms of doing multiple takes. Um, I hope that we come back to the point where we can be in rooms together because I, uh, I, I, I miss that. I miss knowing casting directors and really knowing about their lives and about their kids, or they just had a baby or, or they just cast something that I loved and I can gush to them about like, you know, this movie that they cast that I adored or whatever, you know, or it's their birthday and I could bring them flowers. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 um, it, it has, there's a sense of remove now from the process that I think is, is not conducive to the kind of love that you really need to make great projects. People are making great projects in spite of it. So I might be wrong, but yeah. 
So how do you feel that it's because, you know, you've worked for many, many years and you mentioned like, oh, if it's somebody's birthday, I can bring them flowers. So Mm -hmm. you clearly have really great relationships with casting directors and other Mm -hmm. people. How how strongly do you believe that building these relationships, how important they are? I'm wording that correctly. You're wording it correctly. I think it's very important, but I don't think you build the relationships in order to build the relationships. I think, you know, that's kind of mercenary. I think you build the relationships because you find your people. You know, there are some casting directors out there who just don't get me. They don't get my work. And that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and there are some out there who have been big fans and have cast me in a dozen things. And that's fine as well. But the ones who are the ones who get me, the ones who are my my people who are part of my personal conspiracy, know that I will bring them the best work for the projects that they're doing. And so have me in. And I love I love it when somebody has confidence in me. You know, because like still, even though I've had all these experiences and done all this work and stuff like that, I still need an attaboy occasionally to to let me know that I'm still good. <laughs> I feel like it's like all theater people, we're just like somewhat insecure. So we need one of those like, you're great. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I work with my wife and she's my biggest fan and like, it's great hearing it from her, but like now that we're doing collaboration and I'm doing the autographs afterwards and stuff like that, people are coming up to me and saying, I didn't know that you didn't have that accent, you know, or like you totally fooled me with your accent or you did an awesome job. Can I, can you sign this for me? And it's just like such a great back and forth that I'm able to have that I, that that's a difference between Broadway and off Broadway too, is there's not a lot of people hanging out off Broadway afterwards to get you to to sign their program or stuff like that. So, you know, there's real fans on Broadway. I think it also depends on like the show because I love Laura Linney. Uh-huh. Me too. Uh, I, I feel you're about to be like, she's my friend. I'll be like, let's meet. No. Um, <laughs> I, I did work with someone. They're like, oh, I just texted her this. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know her? <laughs> you like introduce anyway but i saw her in her one man her one her one man her one woman show she did at mtc Uh uh-huh literally me and an autograph seeker at the stage door wow wow and and it was also freezing cold outside but i'm like how are how am i like the only person waiting outside for like queen lenny like i don't right get it right right yeah i I will also talk about the stage door experience because I was talking to somebody the other day about like their feelings towards it. Well, let's talk about it now. So, I mean, this is your first experience Broadway. So it's your Mm -hmm. first Broadway stage door. Do you think that there should still be a stage door because COVID it's not a way sometimes people aren't masked. Like I know a lot of the times if you've seen, cause you also spoiler walk through the audience in the show, mm-hmm. but not everybody is masked. I always wear a mask in a the theater still because mm-hmm. I also work in the medical field as my real ah. job. Um, so, you know, and if I'm walking into a store, I'm masked about like 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. So what is the stage door like with COVID and all that? Um, I mean, it's a little weird because like, I, I've got to come out because I look so different than my character. Mm-hmm. If, if people want to get my autograph, I got to come out unmasked for a second and then mm-hmm. put my mask on mm-hmm. um, and then ask people if they, if they are, are waiting for uh, uh, Paul and, and, and uh, Jeremy and Krista, or if they want me to sign something. So 90% of people want me to sign something about you 10%. Ask them if you want them to sign. Yeah. Oh my, you, 
No, they should just ask you. I just, I remember when my friends and I saw Fish in the Dark and everybody was just like, my friends and I have a long running joke about Ben Shankman since like Uh our year of college and he was in the show. (laughs) And I have my Angels in America DVD signed by some of the cast. So Uh we're waiting outside and everyone's there for Larry David. So the cast just comes out and waves and then they like go on their way. And then Ben Ben Shankman comes out and I just scream, Ben Shankman! And they're like, come over to us. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm still a Minnesota boy at heart. You know, I don't want to assume. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, and then the people who have, you know, Marvel stuff and stuff like that, I know who that's for because I'm Avenger adjacent. Oh, please. Um, I would bring my A Knight's Tale DVD already signed by Alan Tudyk from like uh-huh. over 15 years ago, aging myself. And I would ask Paul Bettany if he would sign my night's tale dvd i'm sure he totally would he's that kind of guy he's just like oh god i love working with paul bedney um i love working with jeremy christ as well but like my absolute paul bedney is an actor's actor he is he is the he's always checking in he's always um making adjustments on stage to make it better um he's always uh he's always early uh, which is something I deeply respect. Um, and and he's and him and I like we play a little guitar together. I have a mandolin and a guitar in my room, and he just comes in and uses it and borrows it. And mm-hmm. and so there's music exchange happening between us. And you know uh, him and his wife and some of his family came over for for a dinner at our house and and with the with the rest of the cast that could make it. And and you know really like. Um, you know, it, it, it feels off Broadway in that way. You wouldn't know that he's in movies that have made billions of dollars. You just, you wouldn't know, you know, and, and um, also he's, he's, um, he's really a smart actor, which is, which is another thing that I, that I deeply respect. He like, he makes his choices based on, 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 um, on a deep, introspective understanding of the character and some some actors operate on on uh on instinct which is which is also cool too and i do sometimes as well but when somebody like in watching jeremy and paul work together in particular they're both that way they um they would they did the play in london together so they would comment on each other's performances in a way that that i was like wow they're they're really taking each other's inventory here. Is this okay with each of them? And and they're such a duo in the play that that and then are so close. You immediately saw how that chemistry made its way into the way that they talked about working with each other and had suggestions for each other and stuff like that. It's an amazing thing to be a part of during rehearsal. Yeah, I will say though that um because they're they did the movie the collaboration they filmed that. Mm-hmm. Are you in there because you? IMDb are- says that I am. Yeah, but, and but I am a not. different actor playing that part. So there's two Brunos on IMDb. <laughs> I, I, in my imagination, I'm in the movie, but yeah. uh, but no, there's another wonderful actor who's playing Bruno in that. I'm I'm Bruno number three. I, there was the London production. There's Bruno in the movie, and I'm I'm Bruno the third. Yeah. Well, we we won't talk about the the fake Bruno. We don't talk. <laughs> it happened. It was there. Door open. It was. Like, I was. It's very funny though because like Andy Warhol, like you've seen in like the photos and like the makeup they did on Paul Bettany. Mm-hmm. I'm calling him Paul, like I know him personally. I don't. Um, that you can. It's okay. Yeah. So Paul, like the makeup they put on him for like the photos uh-huh. and everything. Uh-huh. I saw bro because I did the cheaper tickets, which I can't do for much longer. 
Uh-huh. I'm aging myself. And I like sat front row. I'm like, he has the most beautiful skin. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I noticed too. I was like, his skin is beautiful. Yeah. I watched, what was fun for me was, so I think I saw the show second night of previews and oh, wow. I was right orchestra and like the sec, the first half of the row was completely empty. And I was sitting with like these two girls and I was like, let's move over. So they ended up, I ended up being on like the aisle seat and so not to spoil anything, but there's a moment when one of the characters is like throwing things all over the stage. One of the art pieces actually flew off the stage and almost hit my foot. Uh-huh. And I was saying to myself, do I take this or do I put it back on stage? I put it back on stage. That was you. We talked about that backstage afterwards. Really? That was you. No, we we, oh. we we had a whole, there was a whole conversation about the thing flying off the stage and what we were going to do and was it important or wasn't it important? And then the audience member very carefully and gently putting it back on the stage. That, that was, was you. Me. That was we me. Had a whole, we had a whole conversation about you without without even knowing you. Oh my god! Yeah. Well, so later you've when been... you come, I'd be like, guys, I was interviewed today by that girl. Who's <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Like, I'm not a complete monster. I'm not gonna like take a prop from a Broadway show because I remember like <laughs> years ago when Hedwig was on Broadway, there was like this huge thing where like somebody took one of Hedwig's wigs from the stage. Uh huh. Oh wow. Like, yeah, and that was like a huge thing. So I was like, I'm not. Wow. Even though it's just like one of the crayons, I was like, I can't. I yeah, ex- exactly. I do know people who probably would have taken it. Oh my yeah. god, talked about backstage. It's so exciting. yes, you were talked about backstage. It was it was it was a thrilling moment because we we uh, whoever was on stage went into great detail about the thing flying off the stage and how it was going to go and yeah, what no, would they that do. Was, and yeah, that was uh oh wait, we don't want to say who it was to spoil anything, but no, uh, no, no, no. Yeah, it was, no, it was pretty was, great. That was an exciting moment. Thank goodness I moved my seat then when I did it intermission. Live theater, live theater. Yeah, live theater yeah. thing. And I even like talked about it. I'm like, guy on my Instagram, I was like, guys, my private, I have two. I have my podcast and my private, but my private one, I was like, guys, I was sitting and I moved my foot because I knew this thing was flying off. The- it literally just like came off the stage and just was like rolling towards my foot. And I just moved <laughs> my foot. And then I was like, let me move it to feel that it's by me because I feel like the girls next to me might have taken it. Uh-huh. Like I did. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, it's there. And then like the whole, like I was paying attention, but I'm like, do I put this prop on stage? How do I put it back on stage? Uh-huh. So yes, that yeah. was me very carefully putting it there and then leaving. Right on, right on. Definitely. I mean, you know, being in this cast is a lot like being in, you know, the the play, if people don't know, it's about the collaboration between uh, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat and Andy Warhol that took place in the mid 80s mm-hmm. that my character, Bruno Bischoffberger, actually set up. And Bruno was instrumental in um, in sort of uh, popularizing the pop art scene in the 60s. And then later on with people like Basquiat and Schnabel, the neo-expressionist movement in New York and Bruno, 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 like so much great art has passed through Bruno's gallery and, and, and through his person. Um, he's just got incredible taste and incredible love for his, for his artists. And, and so, you know, it, it, it's, um, so it's a lot of fireworks on stage between the artists and a lot of humor, a lot of fun stuff to play, but, you know, really being in this cast is like being in a great jazz quartet. 
Mm-hmm. Like it's like it's like being it's like playing a piece of music together that we all know and we've rehearsed a hundred times, yeah. but there's always new things when you're playing jazz mm-hmm. or where, when you're in the Grateful Dead. There's always new things. There's new improvisations and there's new not necessarily words, but there are new there are new energies that pop out. And this cast is so deft at grabbing a hold of those new energies and 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 going for it. We had one performance the other night where Paul came off stage and he's like felt like a completely new show felt completely new tonight i don't know how many i mean and he's been in the london production the movie and now multiple multiple performances on also, broadway i don't know you if know. you like saw the photo of him as andrew warhol in the film but it's like yeah yeah disturbingly accurate it's it's astonishing the makeup yeah. work in that in that movie is incredible yeah. so you know so there's always an opportunity like and some audiences are quieter than others we call those listening audiences who really and so we double down on really telling the story some audiences are really raucous and want to applaud after every scene and and we appreciate them and give them a lot of love back um but it, it makes it the audience's fifth character really makes it a different show every night and i feel very fortunate to be a part of it has anybody yelled out the vision? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, except for me. <laughs> yeah. no. I remember I, I'm sure at some point, because you hear like the stories of like how actors get yelled at for certain things. I, I saw a view from the bridge with uh, Leah Schreiber and Scarlett Johansson mm. years ago. Mm. And I was at a performance. And when the lights were going down before the show starts, somebody yells out, I love you, Scarlett, or something like that. Mm. And then mm. Leah Schreiber was on a talk show a few days later and mentioned that somebody shouted that out. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Watch yeah. somebody yell that out tonight. Well, yeah, maybe exactly. Hear it over the music. Yeah. Well, there's a wonderful DJ, DJ Liv, who does their uh, thing uh, uh, at the beginning of the show and in the middle of the act. I've, like I've said, I've gained a new appreciation for 80s dance music. Um, you know, being the, being being turned into a snob by Lester Bangs is not like the greatest thing in the world. But but uh, 80s dance music is is our new thing. So it's fun. Yeah. Well, again, our, our fun dance moves. Our fun dance moves. That's right. Don't you yeah. want me? And that always reminds me of isn't there like a cookie commercial where they're like driving in a car and then they're like eating each other? Oh my God, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. Well, that was, that was <laughs> like the, what is it? The cinnamon toast crunch commercials where they're like eating each other. Oh my God. Right? Yeah. You know, Cannibalism. And yeah. And yeah. like people don't, I'm like, that's not normal, but I, I'm enjoying this commercial. I don't know. It's weird, but um, I'm sensing, I'm sensing another play coming. You know what? <laughs> I'll co-direct with your wife. That's fine. I'll great. That's fantastic. Her. I think um, it'd be great. Yeah. I'm always available to do anything creative because awesome. like my creative outlet is my podcast because my real job is working in medical. And I mean, there's some fancy creative things you can do by like, I found this doctor that this person can try to go to, but uh-huh. uh, fancy Google work, like Google this type of doctor in this area. But I'm... Sure. Um, I know you touched upon this before in other interviews, but since we're talking for the first time, because you have played um, Lester Bangs and you're playing mm-hmm. his last name, I cannot pronounce. I've already told you. Bruno Bischoff Burger. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So for you, what is it? How is it playing a real person? Like how much research is brought in? How much of it do you do yourself? Because, you know, as any actor say, it's your own interpretation of the character. So mm-hmm. how much research do you allow yourself to do? um before or while creating the character well it depends on the part 
Um, uh, this is the third real person I played. I actually played a famous New York Yankee in the miniseries, The Bronx is Burning, a beloved, uh, a beloved catcher for the Yankees, captain of the Yankees, uh, uh, Thurman Munson, number 15, um, the great Thurman Munson, who died um, tragically in a plane crash uh, just a couple years after uh, they won their, their second World Series in a row. Um, and Munson was... Uh, Munson was beloved. He was also 26 pounds heavier than me. So what I did for the Thurman Munson thing, I wouldn't do this now just because it affects your health so much, but I gained, I gained 24, 25 pounds for the part so that my, my weight matched his on the baseball card. Um, and so that I looked like him, it really like filled me out and, and made me look a lot like him. Just gaining that weight in and of itself helped a lot with the character, but then I watched and 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 copied uh, two interviews that I had to do for the miniseries that were exact copies of interviews he'd done on on uh, television. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that all the mannerisms and everything was there. Um, and copying begins with imitation, mm -hmm. um, but then it turns into something different about halfway through, where you're doing it automatically and not thinking so much about imitating them and their rhythms and stuff like that. And you just kind of find yourself in the pocket. It's like copying a guitar player if you play guitar. Um, eventually it becomes your own. Mm -hmm. um, and then I read his autobiography. I talked to a lot of his friends. Um, but at a certain point, you have to throw that research away. With Lester Bangs, it was easy to be Lester because I was reading his words written in the first person. So I was just channeling what Lester wrote and pe what people write, their personality is in there. I mean, I don't care who you are. If you're a fourth grader or if you're a professional journalist, your personality is in your writing. Um, and, and your personality is in, is in, is in transcripts of your, of your words. Mm -hmm. um, it's there already. So that was easy with Lester. With Bruno, I happened to uh, serendipitously uh, meet a, uh, a Swiss doctor when we were on vacation in Europe. And he had such an interesting accent, which is a cross between German and French with a little bit of Italian thrown in. Um, something really interesting with the R sound in there, really, you know, he sort of, you sort of swallow the R, it's a little bit German, but also a little bit French. And I couldn't place him. And finally he explained to he was from Switzerland and I was like, oh, you're where all the countries meet. And um, so I had, I put, I had put that in my toolbox just for fun, I was like, oh, I'm going to remember that accent if I ever get to play a Swiss guy. And like six weeks later, I had my audition, Yeah, <laughs> you know, so so but with Bruno, um, I really focused on the artists that he loved. You know, I was more interested in researching the people that he gravitated towards as a as a defining characteristic of who he was, you know, because it's really only a sketch and a lot of the script is imaginary and and there were a couple of interviews that I found, uh, mostly from later in his life, where he was reflecting on his career and stuff like that. I didn't find a lot of interviews from when he was when from the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, but I just he had this twinkle to him that was like really, really just easy for me to access. And I was fine. Also, it's refreshing and nice with this kind of character to play somebody who's nice. Yeah. Like to play somebody who's kind. Mm -hmm. And to play somebody who's like, you know, got their own objectives. And, you know, at, at times uh, the character can be, I guess some people would consider the character to be, you know, kind of um, uh, being a little bit manipulative. But but I don't think that's really where he's coming from. I think he's really trying to help these artists come together and he's trying to get the band together. You know what I mean? So, yeah. 
So, so that's that, that part of being a real person is, is, and he's still around. Bischoff Berger is still around. He's still in Switzerland. But, um, what? Has he like gone to London and seen the show that, you know, no, no. Um, but you know, what I'm really trying to capture is, is energy. I'm just, the wind is already up there. I just need to throw up a sail and capture it. And, you know, and characters define each other. You know, so if I get on stage and I just let Paul and Jeremy and Krista do the acting for me, I can immediately fall into the pocket of being Bruno because I know what my purpose is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just want to say I have to go and do an animation test uh, with my friend Rachel here. So I've got about five more minutes. Perfect. Okay? So um, we're going to, I was going to end the podcast towards it anyway. That's not English, okay. but we're going to figure this out. Uh, quickly okay. though, when is opening night? For... Uh, well, our opening night got truncated because uh, one of the cast members got COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so our official opening night got taken away from us. We didn't get the party, but we've we've officially opened. Oh, now. you're officially opened. Okay. And we're, and we're open for sure through January 29th. We just got extended as well. Yeah, no, I saw that. I My friends and I are talking about seeing the show again. So if I do, I'll... Oh, will you... Yes, I will let will you, you please know. let me know. Absolutely. Let me know because maybe we can maybe we can maybe if there's an outdoor place and it's warm enough, maybe we can grab a quick I don't drink, but we can grab a quick soda or something afterwards because I love talking to you. Well, there is Glasshouse Tavern across. No, yes, across the street. We can always get some rice balls. Okay, great. Because they good. Got, good, got good risotto balls. Anyway, so what are your top going theater experiences? Top going theater experiences. Uh, in less than five minutes in less than five minutes i saw an actor play richard the third at the guthrie in minneapolis mm -hmm. uh byron jennings yes and when i was 15 years old mm -hmm. and he was so brilliant and had so much fun um that might be the second reason that i'm an actor is watching mm -hmm. him play richard the third he was just he just was so awful and manipulative. And then he put on a smile the next minute. He was just perfect as Richard. And mm -hmm. so that's that's one of my big ones. And then I got to see, gosh, let's see a new, oh, I just saw for the first time, cause I'd missed it. Mm -hmm. I just saw Hamilton. And and I, you know, again, I'm, uh, I was a musical snob. Hamilton converted me uh, to the point where we just got a musical commissioned uh, from us, from the public theater. We don't know, Jessica and I don't know who our partner is going to be yet, but it's a great thing. I can't tell you anything about it, Perfect. but Hamilton, Hamilton at the, at the intermission, I was just like, we have to do something like this. Like we have to, like mm -hmm. I, we have no choice. So seeing all those actors really take on those roles was so much fun for me. And then like, you know, anything that David Strathairn happens to be in, um, you know, uh, there are some, you know, uh, there are some real stalwarts out there who are stalwarts of the American theater that I really love to see. Cherry Jones, mm -hmm. um, anything that she's in. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have any, I know this is kind of cliche, but whatever, uh, dream roles or anything that you aspire to do? Well, I did want to do Richard III for a long time. I don't know if my Shakespeare chops are quite up yet. I would. I don't work regionally anymore, but I would. Uh, I would work regionally for that. Like if they did it at Guthrie or something like that. But I, I don't know if my chops are quite there right now. Um, I'd really like to be in a Star Wars or on Star Trek. 
Um, I'm a big science fiction geek, so like you know anything or anything sort of dystopian or post-apocalyptic. I I already did uh, I already did uh, a little stint on The Walking Dead, which was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, but I like the costumes. I like the darkness. I like I like the um, I like the pretend of it all. It's sort of uber pretending. So so yeah. So I'd like to I'd like to do something like that. Something comic booky. Yeah. Okay. Now inside the actor studio questions. Let's do it. Let's do it. What is your favorite word? Love. What is your least? Yeah, that's right. What is your least favorite word? Shit. And I what... say it all the time. Perfect. What turns you on? Art. Uh, let me be specific. Oh, let me be specific. It's just going to take a second because I'm trying to remember the song. Um. Big Star's Ballad of El Goodo. Uh, it's a song by by a band called Big Star, and it's it's uh, it talks about uh, going through the world and at your side is God. And that song really turns me on. It gets me ready for anything. What turns you off? Cruelty. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck. <laughs> it's so funny because you said shit. <laughs> um, I, I say shit all the time, but my favorite curse word is fuck. And now I have a teenage daughter and she's she's now overusing it in, in situations. And I really have to pull her back. She's like, but you say it, you know, so it's like that battle. I'm over 18. Um, yeah. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, um, our, our, our our animals when they get up in the morning mm -hmm. um the dog makes kind of a whiny sound and the cat meows and yells at me for food i like those sounds a lot what sound or noise do you hate crying like real grief crying okay. i was going to yeah. say like crying because you're so good in the collaboration that people are just oh thank you uh, <laughs> what profession other than yours would you like to attempt um, I would love to be a professional guitarist in a Grateful Dead cover band, but I also am aware that my skills are not quite up to par. But if 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 I could if I could have like three years to practice, I would like to do the Bob Weir parts in a Grateful Dead cover band. Ten minutes a day. Um, I have no yeah. idea. Uh, what profession would you not like to do? Politician. So I, think, I know you're. I think they're sorry. too compromised. Yeah, yeah, I think they're too compromised. Yeah. So the last question. I know you're Buddhist, so I don't know what your belief is is with heaven. But he used to James Lipton used to phrase it in a way for people who didn't believe in God or they had a different religion. But I don't remember how the question was phrased. So I'm just going to ask you what's written. It's heaven. If heaven mm -hmm. exists, what would you like to hear mm -hmm. God when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, I'm sorry that it took so long. And is meaning, oh, sorry, you're saying more. Uh, meaning like, like, I'm sorry that you're 110 and that it took so long for you to get here. Like, you know, I mean, having almost gone to heaven this year, like, oh, yeah. I don't know if I'd like to hear anything right now. <laughs> but you know, what? you but, could just say that. Like, I think, I think maybe, let me rephrase. I think, I think God would, if God would say, you know, Hey, it's been a long run. Yeah. It's been a long run. As Lipton would say, here are your students. 
Well, Eric, you can stay on after I stop recording, but thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It was really lovely chatting with you mm-hmm. and hearing all of your stories um, and hearing everything that you're doing and just like gushing over Paul Bettany and learning that I was talked about backstage. <laughs> I will the always cast have is going to be so amazed that I actually talked to the person who was part of that exchange. Yeah. And then like when I stage door and Paul Bettany's there, you could be like, Paul, this is the person. Yes, exactly. It's exactly. like in my head, that's what it is. It doesn't exactly. have to be. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming all on. Right. And thank you for all those who are listening and to stop recording now.